the second half of Augustine's City of God, books 11 through 22, is organized around the theme of the two cities, as I mentioned. So let me start by taking a stance on a, a major area of controversy among readers of Augustine, which is what those two cities are. Everyone's got their own theory about this, but here's mine, because that's what I think the text says. The earthly city and the city of God. By the earthly city, Augustine means actual earthly cities. It means political communities, cities, nations, republics, political communities in this world. Both the term earthly city and the term heavenly city, he says, are metaphors or allegories, but in, in different ways, or, or metaphors, he says, but in different ways. The earthly city is a metaphor in a very limited sense. It's just using the singular to stand in for the plural. It's like when you say, the new model Honda Odyssey is better than the last model. Well, there's actually lots of Honda Odysseys. That's all that it's a metaphor in the sense of. It's a literal, visible city. He gives examples. Rome, Babylon, Carthage. The heavenly city is not literally a city. It is an allegory, he says. It's a, it is, in fact, a society. It is literally a society. The, allegory, the allegorical term city is following the scriptures. It is the heavenly Jerusalem, of which the earthly Jerusalem in the Old Testament was only an image or foreshadowing. The Mosaic Commonwealth, that is, of the Old Testament was an earthly city. He is explicit about this. The heavenly city is the community of the saints, along with the angels. It includes many who have already died, going back to Abel. It includes many who are still on pilgrimage through this earth. This is why he says, for example, that the earthly city will end and the heavenly city won't. Each of us, in fact, has an immortal soul with an eternal destiny. Uh, all of us will go on for all eternity one way or another, but the earthly city at that point will not exist anymore as a city. It ends when humans die. It exists only on this earth. The heavenly city will still be a community. We will still have a social life, God willing, in heaven. Now, what does this mean for the earthly cities that Christians actually relate to? I want to start by clearing up one important uh, and I think somewhat common misunderstanding of Augustine. Augustine often says that the earthly city of Rome was ruled by demons because he says it worshipped demons. What does he mean by this? He means, I think, a kind of shorthand. He's trying to follow scriptural usage again here. The psalmist in the translation that Augustine was using says the gods of the nations are demons. Paul says meat sacrificed to idols is sacrificed to demons. But what does it mean? How does Augustine interpret those passages? What does it mean to say the pagan gods are demons? Does it mean that there is a demon named Jupiter who is married to a demoness named Hera and that the demon cheats on the demoness with, with maidens and that one time this other demoness... Uh, no, is the answer. No. No, it's not the case. You don't read the pagan poets' stories about the gods and think these are actually true stories about real demons. That's not what he means by saying the gods of the nations are demons. As he also explains, the gods of the nations are false. They're false gods. They don't exist in the way in which they're described in Virgil's Aeneid. The gods aren't real. Demons, however, are real. And demons take delight in seeing human beings 
turn away from the true God. What did I think I called this one? Demons and Christians in the earthly city. And so we are serving demons. He puts it quite precisely at one point. When we worship false gods, we serve demons. Because when we worship false gods, we enslave ourselves to falsehood, error, and vice. And in that way, we are serving the interests of demons. That, I believe, is Augustine's interpretation of the scriptural view that idolatry is a form of demon worship. It's not that there's some sort of one-to-one -one correspondence between the lies of pagan poets on the one hand and the real world of demons. Scriptural actually, scripture tells us relatively little about demonology. But it says demons are real, and they're our enemies because they're God's enemies. That's all we really need to know from Augustine's point of view. A second aspect, though, of this, of this misunderstanding, you know, what do the demons have to do with the earthly city? Augustine often associates demons with the earthly city. And at a couple points, he even calls the earthly city the city of the devil. That has caused a lot of quite understandable confusion among his Christian interpreters. Because it's pretty clear also that for Augustine, a Christian Rome is still Rome and is still an earthly city. Even after the pagan altars have been overturned by Christian emperors, Demonic idolatry is no longer a publicly mandated part of Roman civic life. And yet, there are only two cities, two types of cities. Rome is still an earthly city. Rome is not turned into the heavenly city, as a number of Christian apologists for the Roman Empire were in fact suggesting at the time. Uh, Eusebius of Caesarea is the most famous, but you know he had followers. That somehow the political triumph of Christianity means in some sense, the kingdom of God on earth. There's not a hint of that in Augustine, and it's quite significant that there isn't. Augustine is indeed happy that we have Christian emperors rather than pagan ones. He's happy that they've shut down the pagan temples. I'll talk more about that a bit later. But the city they're governing is still an earthly city. And so what does that mean? Does that mean now that Christianized Rome is still the city of the devil? That thought has always been attractive to Christian pacifists and to others who say that Christians need to just stay out of civic life. You know, it's the world of the devil. You can't get involved in it without effectively worshiping the devil. We know that was not Augustine's view. As a bishop, he was involved in local civic life himself, not just in, I mean, as a Christian bishop, he basically had to run a small claims court because they still took seriously the idea that you shouldn't sue other Christians in secular court. So the poor bishop had to run the court for Christians. Took up a lot of his time. But he also was involved. You know, every, every time a Christian was on death row, he had to intercede for clemency with the local governor. Uh, he, he, was, he was just involved in civic life. Uh, he wrote letters to governors and so on. He never told any of them to stop being governors. He once even intervened with a, an important Roman general. Just as the Vandals were invading northern Africa, this guy had got the idea that he should quit the army and join a monastery. And Augustine rides right out there to the, to the field and says, there is no way, there is no way you are joining a monastery right now. You can start praying more often. We can come up with a good plan of spiritual discipline for you. You can live celibately uh, as a general, because there are not going to be any monasteries left in North Africa if the Vandals invade and you lose this war. Stay here and do your job defending the earthly city. That doesn't quite sound like the Christian pacifists who say it's the city of the devil. So what does he mean? by this phrase, city of the devil. I think this tension, this apparent tension, can be resolved if we just bear in mind what Augustine says about all the goods of this world, of this life. They're all intrinsically good as created by God. 
And yet sin means loving any one of these goods at the expense of loving God. And so it's pointless to say, as some interpreters of Augustine try to say, well, you know, how can you say the earthly city is diabolical? Doesn't Augustine recognize all the good in the earthly city, all the important goods it protects? Of course, he says, yeah, I, I, I listed them. Of course, they're goods. Of course, they're worth protecting. And if you love any one of them more than you love God, you're serving the devil. Father, mother, children, spouse, wealth, honor, power, military victory, universities, football games, children's choirs, they're all worth protecting in this earthly pilgrimage. And sin means loving any one of those things more than you love God. And that would be diabolical. And this is the crucial point about the earthly city that I actually get from this earlier work on free choice. The first place, actually, where he distinguishes between the two cities, even before the commentary on Genesis. Every earthly city, as he famously says in City of God, uh, and also in Unfree Choice, is united by some common object of love. This is how it holds together as a city. There's got to be something that pretty much all Americans love in some way that makes us one country. What is that something? He says it's different for different countries, and he says it'll be better for better countries and worse for worse countries. That gradation really exists. But he says, I'll tell you one thing it will never be, God. It's never God. The genuine love of the one true God will never be the binding force that holds together an entire earthly political community. The thing or things that we all in the political world can unite in loving will always be some created good or set of goods. And yet, every earthly city will always at some point treat those created goods as the highest object of our collective love. In that sense, it will always be the city of the devil. The city, as a collectivity, will look up to created goods more than the city collectively looks up to God. And that's not to say that the earthly city cannot also look up to God. In fact, we know it can, because the Old Testament commonwealth did. It was an earthly city that worshipped the one true God. Why did it worship him? Augustine says, for the sake of earthly goods. The average rank-and-file Hebrew in the Old Testament commonwealth was going to the temple in Jerusalem because he wanted God to help him beat the Philistines. That's not the actual love of God. It's worship of God in a sense. It's his temple. It's better than paganism, and that's quite important for Augustine. You would rather live in the Mosaic Commonwealth than in the land of the Philistines. God had that commonwealth for a reason, but it was not the city of God. Within the Hebrew Commonwealth, only a minority were true citizens of the city of God, the spiritual Israelites, as Augustine calls them following Paul as distinguished from the rank-and-file carnal Israelites. In what I think is a very important passage for understanding this aspect of Augustine's, city of, uh, Augustine's thought, he says at one point in City of God, he says, it is characteristic of the earthly city that it worships either many gods or the one true God for the sake of obtaining earthly goods. In other words, you can have, in some sense, a Christian commonwealth. But the public religion of that commonwealth will effectively be carnal Christianity. It will be something like a kind of prosperity gospel. There are more and less degraded forms of the prosperity gospel. There are many gradations. It doesn't have to be wealth, for example, that your earthly city is united and loving. Occasionally, you get something as honorable as worldly glory. And Augustine says that's better. It's a better earthly good to be united and loving than wealth. Pagan Rome was better than pagan Carthage. 
There are gradations among pagan and among earthly cities. If you do work in politics, you have to think about these things because that's, in a way, all politics can ever be about is these gradations in collective sinfulness. Those gradations matter. Freedom is still better than slavery. Prosperity is still better than poverty. Family is still better than loneliness. All these things are worth defending. And a relatively good earthly city will defend them relatively well. But it will defend them for its own reasons. And every earthly city will try, consciously or unconsciously, to form citizens who love, above all, whatever the city loves, which is never God. And that's what citizenship meant in the eyes of the Romans to whom he's primarily speaking. It meant loving, above all, Rome and the gods who supported Rome. It's a citizenship of the heart. We tend to forget this because we use citizen to mean somebody who'd got a US passport or a voter ID card. I mean, when he's talking about earthly citizenship, he's talking about something much deeper in the soul than that. In that deep interior sense, Christians can never be citizens of the earthly city. We can never love the United States the way that Regulus loved Rome. Augustine admires Regulus. He says, I wish I could get Christians to do for the church what Regulus did for Rome. We should be ashamed of ourselves, he says as Christians, looking at these great heroes of paganism and how much they loved their city. Look at our city. But our city isn't Rome. In terms of our external behavior, we may well be better citizens in the casual, ordinary sense of the term as it's used in everyday life than most non-Christians are. Usually we should be. But that's not what Augustine means. That's not how he's using the term citizen when he says you have to be a citizen either of the earthly city or of the city of God. He's talking about your ultimate loyalty. No earthly city really wants your ultimate loyalty to lie outside the city. It may tolerate you for being like that, but it's never going to be excited about it. The Christian life will always, for Augustine, require a certain interior revolt against the earthly city that you're living in. It may be a revolt against the gods of that city. It may be a revolt against the false understanding of the one true God that has been put forth in words or in deeds by your purportedly Christian commonwealth. Either way, it is a rejection of earthly citizenship in that all-encompassing, deep, ancient sense of the term citizenship. And today we should probably add that Christian life could require a revolt against the atheism of your, an internal revolt against the atheism of your earthly city if you live in an atheistic earthly city. As Dr. Moeller mentioned, you know, the past century has seen some atheistic earthly cities. Most of them haven't lasted very long, but they've existed. And I'm not sure what Augustine would say about them. He seems to have pretty much taken for granted, as pretty much everybody did before Pierre Bale, that any earthly city would have some kind of publicly acknowledged religion one way or another. At any rate, there are atheistic earthly cities. We don't live in one. There is a quasi-official quasi public theology in this country. There is a God to whom we pray at our public legislative sessions, in our courts, in our military chaplaincies. We acknowledge him on our money, in our Pledge of Allegiance, in our oaths of office. We use God in the singular when we do this. That's already significant. The majority of the world, you know, was not monotheist when this country was founded, and more than a third of the world is still not monotheist today. So these are not uncontroversial theological claims by not putting an S at the end of God or, or by capitalizing the first letter. We could debate, and Christians do debate, to what extent the God of American public theology is or is not genuinely the Christian God. What Augustine would certainly say is this. 
even if it is officially the Christian God, even if you had a commonwealth that were to verbally acknowledge Christ and show reverence for his true church, that commonwealth, that earthly commonwealth, would still, in effect, whether it says so or not, treat Christ and his church as means to its own worldly success of one kind or another. And that's just because there are never enough genuine lovers of God unto contempt of all things that they could ever fully set the tone for an entire earthly city. There's just not enough of them. The city pursues its own ends. Sometimes it uses religion to those ends. Sometimes it's even the true religion. But it's still the earthly city. So what does all that mean for how Christians should relate to our earthly cities? And I am, by the way, still thinking of this in the context of apologetics, just as Augustine is. His longest and most extensive statement on the relationship between Christians and their earthly cities comes in the city of God, his polemic against the pagans. How can we, that is, provide Christian witness, witness to the truth of Christ in our political activity or lack thereof as pilgrims living in the earthly city? What parts of the earthly city can we accept? What parts do we need to reject as pagan? And what parts, if any, should we seek to Christianize? Those are very big questions for 10 minutes. So my main answer to them is going to be to emphasize that Augustine does not think they have universal answers. I cannot tell you how many times I've been frustrated hearing somebody say, well, given what Augustine would say about the two cities, clearly we should vote for Trump, or clearly we should not vote for Trump, or clearly whatever, X, Y, Z policy. Uh, this is just not how Augustine's thought works, guys. I'm sorry. I am open to any number of options, uh, any number of arguments for and against various policy options today. I'm even open to the claim that Christian, the Christian faith demands X, Y, or Z policy under certain political circumstances. What I cannot accept is people claiming that, Augustine, that Augustine's authority proves this. Augustine knew more political philosophy than any of the church fathers. He understood the earthly city as well as anybody. That is why he wrote so little in the way of general guidance for Christian political activity. He knew how much depends on, on concrete circumstances. And he wanted to get it right in a way that would last. He succeeded at that. He wanted to articulate accurately and for the first time in Christian intellectual history the basic essentials of the church-state relationship. He did not want to go further than that. Except in his personal letters and his sermons where he did talk about some of the events of the day, including political events, he made a number of concrete judgments, all of which are debatable, all of which we could talk about. But he knew that those all depended on a lot of circumstances, and he never tried to claim they would apply to a very different set of circumstances other than his own, like ours. In the city of God, he is laying down the basic minimum framework for Christian political involvement within which everything else will be up for debate. And again, I think within that framework, nobody can honestly claim Augustine's authority. They can say, based on these things Augustine says, I make the following argument, which I think is consonant with Augustine, which Augustine would make if he were in our circumstances. You can never prove that. I don't mind that. I'm happy to have those arguments. But let's just focus on what he actually says. If you've read City of God, Book 19, Chapter 17, you, this will be familiar. But let me summarize, and, and all of 19, really. Let me summarize the main points. The first and most fundamental one, the earthly city, whatever other goods it may seek, it has to seek a certain earthly peace and harmony about the basic goods of this life. And that peace, says Augustine, is a good thing. It's recognized as a good thing by both good and bad people alike in this life. The sack of Rome was very bad. It was a failure of the earthly city of Rome. Christians don't want that to happen again. Pagans don't want that to happen again. It will happen from time to time to both Christians and pagans. 
God permits that. And the false pagan gods don't stop it. Earthly disasters will happen despite our best efforts. Nonetheless, it is our human responsibility to defend ourselves from the Goths and the Vandals by whatever means we can consistent with virtue and piety. Good Christians, bad Christians, Jews, Muslims, pagans, atheists, we can all agree we don't want the Goths to invade. There is, in that respect, what John Rawls would have called an overlapping consensus, although let me emphasize, Augustine is not a Rawlsian. For Augustine, the church as such does not directly protect us from the Goths. Individual Christians, members of the church, may, but it is not the job of the church as church to be protecting us from the Goths. It's the job of the earthly city. The earthly city will do that job for its own reasons, and they won't be the church's reasons, but the job still needs doing. Therefore, he says, the church supports the earthly city while remaining distinct from it. Even the church in this life cannot be indifferent to the goods of this life, and therefore to the powers that protect those goods. Even the pilgrim, cities of God, uh, even the pilgrim citizens of the city of God in this life need and make use of the goods that the earthly city perversely loves. I'm just paraphrasing Augustine here. Therefore, we pray for kings and those in authority, as the New Testament tells us to. We obey, he says, the laws and customs by which earthly peace is preserved. It's worth, you know, Americans tend to be pretty legalistic, so I think it's just worth bearing that in mind. Laws and customs, part of fitting into your earthly city is not just conforming with the legal minimum, but there's also unwritten laws and customs that are part of how earthly peace is preserved. They all matter. The heavenly city, he says, I'll quote, preserves and follows the laws and customs that aim at the goal of earthly peace, so long as they do not impede the religion by which it is taught that the one and highest, the one highest and true God is to be worshipped. So there are exceptions to that obedience. We obey, he says, as much as we can without violating piety or religion. What does that mean? In context, he gives only one example. When the earthly city tells you to worship false gods, you have to obey, you have to disobey that one. That's, that's open and shut. And so Christians are demanding, in effect, that the earthly city should at least, at a minimum, tolerate Christian religion. That's a non-negotiable demand. He suggests, by speaking, I mean, piety, of course, for him includes morality. It's not just about the way you worship and outward signs of worship. So when he says that the earthly laws can't impede the religion, true religion, that probably implies that certain serious acts of immorality or if they were demanded by our earthly laws, could be uh, legitimately refused and would even have to be legitimately refused. He doesn't emphasize this, so he seems to assume it's not a common thing that the law is actually forcing you to do something immoral. But it's possible based on what he says. Also arguable based on what he says, you know, he says uh, the laws and customs by which earthly peace is preserved. If you had some extraordinarily stupid law that wasn't even doing anything to contribute to earthly peace, you could make an Augustinian case for disobeying that law, maybe. But he doesn't emphasize those exceptions, and he clearly assumes there would be exceptions. There, they would not be the normal case. His strong emphasis in Augustine is on the need for earthly concord, agreement, peace, gen that is, through general obedience to the law. He was acutely aware of how fragile all of these goods that the earthly city preserves are and how fragile that concord is by which it's preserved, how easily it can all fall apart if people start putting themselves above the law, however imperfect that law may be. He does, I also want to add, because I think people often miss this, he presupposes the rule of law here. It's quite significant. He doesn't say, uh, you know, 
Luther wrote a treatise on secular authority, how much it ought to be obeyed. For Augustine, the term is always law rather than authority. Uh, Luther was much more comfortable with lawless authority than, than Augustine was. He really went, he follows the Platonic tradition of emphasizing the rule of law over against the rule of man. Obviously, laws need exceptions sometimes. We can get into that. But the, the rule is, uh, is law rather than simply will of the rulers. These, I said, are the minimum demands that the church makes on the earthly city. What do I mean by demands? What does the church do if these demands aren't met? Augustine is quite clear on what the church does if these demands aren't met. The church accepts that her members will be martyred. It was necessary, he says, under the Roman earthly city for the church to accept martyrdom until such time as there were so many martyrs that the earthly city itself began to be scared by how many there were. That, he says, that's the human mechanism by which the church won its battle for freedom against the Roman state. The Christians waited it out, and they kept on dying until there were too many of them to kill. It's a very impressive political strategy when you can manage it. And I think it's something we all need to think more about. Being prepared for martyrdom is essential to Christian political engagement as Augustine understands it, and a church that no longer understands itself as a church of martyrs is not a church prepared to stand up to the earthly city when the earthly city needs standing up to. Now that's what I said, the minimum conditions or framework for Christian witness in the political world as subjects or citizens. Let me go one step further and say what I take to be his view of Christian political witness where Christians exercise actual political power instead of just getting martyred. In a way, it's easier when you're being martyred. There's very little need for prudence, and you don't have to worry about moral compromise. It gets harder once you have Christians sitting on the imperial throne or in the halls of Congress or wherever it might be. But he does say service to the earthly city can be a true vocation for Christians, just as Joseph served the city of Egypt and Esther and Daniel and his three companions served Babylon. What should Christians do to bear witness to Christ without acting like pagans? Obviously, the same minimum conditions that apply to subjects apply also to Christian politicians or statesmen. You can't take part in a religious ritual that clearly divinizes something that isn't God. Bowing to the emperor, Augustine's clear. He says that's not saying that he's a god. Sacrificing a goat to the emperor is whether you say it with your lips or not, he says, any reasonable person would interpret. If you're putting, burning incense on the altar of the emperor, any reasonable per person would say you're acting like the emperor is a god. You can't do that. If it's a qualification for public office, you can't hold public office. Some Christians have thought that saluting the American flag falls into that category. I don't see that myself. But if I did, if saluting the flag were clearly a visible sign of some idolatrous theological claim, Augustine would certainly say then you can't salute the flag. You can't do anything impious. You can't do anything immoral as a Christian statesman, just as a Christian subject. There's a huge can of worms in there. How, can you, how much can you permit vice without being morally implicated in that vice? Augustine does not give much practical guidance on that question. He makes it clear that the earthly city always has to tolerate a lot of vices, and that many people will take that as active encouragement in those vices, and you can't stop that. So he definitely does not think that it is immoral to accept that your fellow citizens are being immoral and to realize you can't stop them with the force of law. On the other hand, he, he did think and said that the law obviously has to work to keep some moral vices in check and that it's a moral failing and a common moral failing in politicians if they're too lazy or too worried about becoming unpopular or labeled as a bigot to check those vices. 
Again, that leaves open the question of what concretely you have to do in order to be a moral politician. Augustine did think there were answers to that question, but he left us to debate them. A couple more minimum requirements that I think Augustine would say a, a Christian politician has to try to meet if he or she wants to be faithful to the legacy of the martyrs and consistent with the Christian apologetic against paganism. For Augustine, the martyrs did not die in defense of the right to worship according to the dictates of their own conscience. They died in defense of the right to worship God, the only God who exists. They denied that the earthly city had any right to be indifferent to the existence of that God, to shrug its shoulders and to say, well, your God may exist or he may not, but we can't afford to think about that right, right now. We got a city to run. I'm sorry, the martyrs said, you do have to care. The earthly city cannot and may not be indifferent to God's existence. All kingdoms on earth are subject to him. Once Christians get into power then, at a minimum, they have to cut off, to the extent they can, the active public sponsorship of non-Christian religious rituals, which, let's just remember, was the default for every earthly city prior to Christianity. This is a big deal. Every city had public altars. The Christian emperors have overthrown those altars, says Augustine. They were right. The whole city of God is written in response to the backlash against the Christian emperors having overthrown the altars. Augustine is clearly defending that decision. You cannot assert the existence of the one God as your reason for defying the laws of the earthly city and then turn around and seem to ignore his existence once you wield political power. So this is already an earthquake in the ancient world. Most pagan religion traditionally was publicly funded and supported by law. You take away that support, that's a huge blow to paganism. And we had to take away that support, he says, to be Christians once we had the power to do so. Whether you then go around actively persecuting pagans who have private altars funded by their own cash in, in their closets or something is a separate question and depends on what effect it would have. Idolatry is a bad thing. It might be one of the bad things that the earthly city has to tolerate to some extent. It might not. You could make an Augustinian argument either way. It would depend largely on circumstances. But Christians, once they start to wield power, have to make some effort, as much as their political circumstances permit, Augustine thinks, to show some public reverence for the God in whose name their forebears were dying. And for his church. Sunday closing laws would be one possible example of that, although not necessarily required by Augustinian thought for sure, but it's, it's a possibility. It would be one, one potential example of that type of reverence. Now, one way to show that reverence, and I've just been reading this great edited volume by... Uh, uh, oh, that's right, of course, Dr. Walker. Are you still here, Dr. Walker? was one of the co-editors, uh, Baptist Political Thought. Everyone should get it. It's great. One way to show that reference for a Baptist in political life, as I take it, might well be to say, I'm a Baptist, I'm a politician, I believe in adult believers' baptism as revealed by Christ, therefore I don't want to persecute other religions. That argument can fit into the basic Augustinian framework for politics, as I understand it. Augustine, as it happens, of course, believed in infant baptism, but it's rather important to see this. I don't think his understanding of politics or of the earthly city depends in any way on his views on baptism, as far as I can tell. It's just not, the connection isn't there. We can set the baptism question to one side, as important as it ultimately is. All I insist on is this, and I insist on it in Augustine's name. If an earthly city were to say, we won't persecute other religions because Jesus Christ told us not to persecute them and we believed in adult baptism, that would in effect be saying that the earthly city should show reverence for the Baptist church it would in effect be a very mild establishment of Baptist Christianity. That's entirely defensible on Augustinian grounds. Human reason alone, unassisted by revelation, does not get you to adult baptism and religious toleration. It gets you to Cicero. Cicero had no problem with the publicly funded temples. 
Christianity does something to public life. Public reverence for God of some kind is an unavoidable effect, again, of members of the Church of the Martyrs finding their way into public life. Public reverence for God is also closely connected to the question of religious freedom, which for Augustine means primarily the freedom of the church, that is the true church. Toleration for false religions and erroneous churches is a valid Augustinian option. It's defensible on Augustinian grounds. Augustine himself defended it. Lack of toleration for erroneous churches and for, pagan, and for false religions is also defensible on Augustinian grounds. And in certain limited cases, Augustine defended that as well. Either, you know, you could make a case for either in different circumstances. You could make a case that, that we never, that the circumstances in which one of those would be good never come up and that you should always go in one direction or the other. The Augustinian framework does not decide that question as far as I can tell. But he doesn't think you can have a country that is simply neutral between true and false religions. That is to say, even religious freedom where we have it, and I'm glad we have it in this country, it always has limits. And those limits, whether we say it or not, will have some relation to the question of truth. For example, there may not be very many sincere Satanists in this country. As far as I can tell, most of them are ironic. But if there are, Augustine would just see no reason why Satanists should deserve the same degree of religious freedom as sincere Christians. We may have to accept tolerating the Satanists as an unavoidable price of political coexistence, but we might not. An Augustinian Christian in politics does not have to play this silly Rawlsian game of pretending not to think that Satanists are despicable because they're Satanists and of coming up with some sort of non-religious grounds for distinguishing between Christians and Satanists or between Satanists and Muslims. The differences are obvious to any Christian and there's no reason why a Christian cannot make policy and say Christians and Muslims get this, Satanists don't. Within the limits set by political prudence, which again remains a very important caveat and then we have to get into questions of American constitutional law and all that stuff. I'm just talking about the very basic Augustinian framework. I'll close with one more. I was told I could go a little bit over. As the last one. Given the importance of martyrdom in Augustine's political thought, one especially important role that Christian politicians need to play is protecting the formative human institutions in which Christians pass down the faith of the martyrs and in which they train younger Christians in that faith that may lead to martyrdom and I mean educational institutions. I take education in the very broad sense that Augustine had inherited from the Greek and Roman philosophic traditions. Christian educational institutions need to be protected. They need to be kept free to do their job. Freedom of religion cannot just mean freedom of worship for Augustine because the church is not the church if it's not educating. It's one of his major contributions to Christian theology. Even civic educational institutions, whether they call themselves Christian or not, whether they have public prayer or not, can make a case for and against. Augustine is very worried, of course, about, having a, you know, about corrupting the church through, over, through overly close involvement with the state. But civic educational institutions, whatever they are, should at least be kept as much as possible from actively undermining Christian truth, most obviously in the area of sexual morality, since not all Christians or potential Christians can afford to go to private schools. As inheritors of the faith of the martyrs, our first apologetical task from Augustine's point of view is forming ourselves and forming the younger generation in that faith. I close with this point because I am grateful to this seminary for its great work in carrying on that task in our own increasingly hostile earthly city. And I will close by quoting a few sentences from a Catholic Pope, Benedict XVI, who in his younger days as Joseph Ratzinger happens to have been, in my opinion, the last century's greatest scholar of Augustine. <clears throat> 
These are the words that Benedict spoke to an exclusively Protestant audience when he was visiting his own native country of Germany as a Catholic pope. And they are, I think, thoroughly Augustinian in spirit. Open quote. The absence of God in our society becomes ever more oppressive. The history of his revelation, as narrated to us in the scriptures, appears to belong to a past that fades further and further away from us. A central ecumenical task today in which we have to help one another is to believe, to have a deeper and more living faith. Tactics are not what saves us and will not save Christianity. Rather, that could only be done by a faith that is thought through anew and lived out anew, the faith through which Christ, and with him the living God, enters into this world of ours. As the martyrs of the Nazi period led us towards one another and inspired the first great opening of the ecumenical movement, so too today, in a secularized world, a faith that is lived out from within is the strongest ecumenical force that leads us towards one another. Close quote from the Pope. I'm not a theologian, and I would never get to say that on my own authority. But I do think that's a guy who knows what he's talking about. Thank you all so much for having me here.